This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So anyway, we're going to be talking about Alzheimer's disease. And, and um, I'm going to start with an important concept that we'll, we'll end up coming back to. So dementia, you know, people often ask us um, many, many times, uh, what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? I'm pretty sure Mike actually mentioned this in his first lecture, that dementia isn't, I, I always say it's really not a diagnosis. It's just a word that describes a syndrome that's very important that says that somebody's having worsening trouble with their thinking or behavior or personality, as Dr. Miller will talk about, it doesn't always have to be what we can classically consider as thinking, and that that trouble's been worsening over time, over at least the last six months, and now it's reached the point where it's interfering with everyday activities, like bill paying or shopping or cooking or work. And that's really what defines dementia. So if it's not a full diagnosis, then what do we do if we identify somebody uh, as having the syndrome of dementia, well, we try to identify a cause. And, and there are many causes. And um, Mike, again, I know pointed out early that among the, there, there's a whole list of causes. And he had this vitamins mnemonic that he illustrated, which talks about vascular, which means stroke, and iatrogenic, which means something the medical community did might have caused the dementia. So there are many potential causes. And when we hear about a patient who's developed this dementia syndrome, we always think about these kinds of things as the possible cause. But the truth is, in many cases, it turns out that those kinds of things aren't the cause of somebody's dementia and that they have a neurodegenerative disease. And ultimately, in the age group over 60 or 70, that's probably the most common reason that people end up having a dementia. So that's what Alzheimer's disease is, a form of neurodegenerative disease. And so that's really our goal, to talk about that kind of dementia. So... What we mean by a neurodegenerative disease is, of course, the brain is made up of individual nerve cells, which there are billions of in the brain, and each nerve cell starts to get sick. And what that means is it starts to be affected by some metabolic problems that we'll talk about, and it becomes unhealthy. And uh, and what that what that starts out as meaning is, you know, uh, you've seen pictures of neurons and in, in nerve cells in this course as well as in others. And, you know, nerve cells are very complicated with branching structures that look like trees. And that's how they communicate with each other. So what happens over time as these nerve cells get ill, they, they draw back their nerve cells. They don't communicate so well with each other. And eventually some of the nerve cells die, not all of them, but some of them, uh, as a result of this uh, toxic process that's affecting them. And this is just an example. Uh, uh, this is a staining of an individual nerve cell. And you can see this is the body of the nerve cell. And here's that big, complicated tree structure that I talked about. And that's what a healthy nerve cell would look like. And and here's what a, an ill nerve cell would look like. And this is one that probably has died. It just has one leftover branch. All that other complex structure is gone. It's a very simple, basic structure now. So when that's happening all over the brain in many, many different parts of the brain, we can start to see that at the macroscopic level. Here we're looking under the microscope. But at the macroscopic level, because all those nerve cells have gotten smaller, then the brain as a whole gets smaller. We call that atrophy. And we'll be looking at some, uh, and you've already seen some, uh, pictures of atrophy. That's really the process that we're, we're seeing the results of when we look at brain images and look at atrophy. So that's what's happening in neurodegenerative disease. 
And and um, again, what I've talked about is I've said neurodegenerative disease in a very broad way. I haven't said a specific diagnosis either. So as you also heard from other people, um, there are many different kinds of neurodegenerative disease. And so they all have in common these changes that I've described where the nerve cells change from being healthy and you know, and complicated to simple and unhealthy. What's different about them is exactly what those metabolic problems are in the nerve cells that's affecting them. And Alzheimer's is, is the most common of these diseases where the metabolic problems are fairly specific. And so this is a cartoon version of this. So this is healthy nerve cells in this cartoon. They're not quite as complex as the one I showed you, but you could, they're plump and they're healthy. And, and here what you're seeing is the nerve cells are more shrunken. And next to and around them, there's these accumulations of these little globs of proteins that are called plaques. And inside the nerve cells, because they're all shrunken and dark turning, uh, or they've turned kind of darker, they, they, they call those things tangles. This is the cartoon version. This is what you would really see under the microscope if you looked at a patient who had the kind of neurodegenerative disease we call Alzheimer's. So you see another unhealthy nerve cell, which is shrunken so much that it has this kind of... Um, triangle with a uh, um, with a one just one little branch coming out of it instead of what it's supposed to have and inside there if you uh, looked under the if you stained the, those um, you tried to identify what what's inside the nerve cell after it's shrunken down it's full of this uh, chemical called tau you've heard about tau several times including from dr rabinovich a, a couple of weeks ago or a week ago and and so the, the the what they call these neurofibrillary tangles so in other words they're little fibrils inside the nerve cells in this shrunken sick nerve cell that has um and it's full of tau so now we say we have nerve tangles that's the tau and then there's plaques and that turns out to be filled up with this chemical that called a beta or amyloid so that's when people talk about Alzheimer's as being characterized by plaques and tangles, we're talking about the tangles filled with tau in the nerve cells and the plaques filled with amyloid outside the nerve cells. And essentially, when someone passes away from a dementia and we look at their brain under the microscope, how are we able to say what's happened to them is by looking for these kinds of changes and we can see plaques and tangles and that's how we say, indeed, this person's problem was Alzheimer's. So that's the problem we're dealing with. And, and what, what I want to go through in the next um, few uh, slides is what the results of this process are. In other words, how do we recognize it in life and how are we going to treat it? And, and how do we treat it now and, and what's the future look like for treatment? And it's based on these very principles that I've just illustrated for you. So hopefully everything I say now will make sense. So it turns out that this amyloid that ends up in the plaques is really a small piece of a larger molecule called APP, or amyloid precursor protein. So for many years, all we knew about it was that it was the source of this amyloid. So they called it amyloid precursor protein. Still, I don't think we know completely what it does, but, but we know where the amyloid comes from. It comes from a normal protein in the cell that ends up getting broken down, and some of it ends up in this amyloid plaques. So that's one thing. And then... The uh, tangles are filled with this protein called tau. Tau was a, um, I showed you how um, nerve cells, they, they have very long branches, um, and particularly they have one long one called an axon. And so for the nerve cell to stay healthy, it needs kind of a network, like a railroad, to move nutrients and chemicals to and fro within that long body of the nerve cell. So that, that, um, 
that network is built of these uh, little tubes called microtubules, and tau apparently is a little chemical that helps keep that network stable. So when the tau starts to malfunction, the microtubules fall apart, the cell can't do its trans- transporting, and that's probably one of the important factors that leads to the cell being uh, impaired. So, so now I've talked about what this problem looks like under the microscope. What do we see in life? Well, as I'm sure many of you know, the main symptom of Alzheimer's disease is memory. Memory has a lot of different definitions, but what we're really talking about here is what psychologists call episodic memory. It means memory for a recent event and all the details of, of what happened. So, um, you know, in the earliest phases, somebody could say, well, I remember the restaurant we went to, but can't really remember what we ate, or I know we watched that movie, but I don't remember exactly which character said what, and you know how often these conversations will come up, and those kinds of details are the first sign that there's a problem, and then as the problem worsens, you get to the point where you, you really don't remember that you went to see the movie, and then you might go see it again, and things like that. So that's the nature of the memory problem, and of course it begins in later age. 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. On the other hand, Alzheimer's isn't limited to those memory symptoms, and by the time we see most patients, they they have other symptoms too. Uh, uh, it can be problems with language. The most common is word finding, but it can get much more severe, so that people's word finding and language trouble can get so bad that we call it an aphasia, which is a language disorder um, similar to what you might see in a stroke that affects the left hemisphere. Dr. Gorno Tempini told you a lot about aphasias. There are different disease, different neurodegenerative diseases that cause, cause aphasia. Alzheimer's is one of them. Uh, you can also have problems with planning and organizing. I think Dr. Mill is going to talk a little bit more about the frontal lobes and what they do. They can be affected in Alzheimer's too. And you can get lost because there's certain parts of the brain back here, the parietal lobes, that are very important for navigating and finding your way around and understanding spatial relationships, and they can have problems. And lastly, you can also have symptoms that we think of as more psychiatric, like anxiety or depression. And all these can be, they're they're definitely more common in Alzheimer's than they would be in, in normal aging. So it's not limited to memory. So one question that we struggled with for many years, but we know the answer to is, well, why memory? So it turns out that um, uh, through neuroscience, we've learned a lot about the brain and, and the fact that different parts of the brain do different things. And it turns out there's one very important part of the brain called the hippocampus, which um, I tried to get, you know, to know where the hippocampus is, you have to think a little bit in three dimensions. So the way I like to show it is if you see, this is, you know, as if I took the, somebody's brain and I put it right in front of you, and so you're looking at the left side of it now. And here's if you sliced it, and this is what we often do virtually with an MRI, a slice into the brain, kind of like this. And then you kind of turned it on its side a little bit. So this red part, I'm sort of showing you how it's moved around. And so now you're seeing this flat surface of what you've cut. And right in here, there's this little structure, which in three dimensions is kind of like a little sausage or hot dog shape. And, uh, and then if you turn it so you're looking flat right on at that surface, that's, that's a typical image you would see from an MRI of somebody's brain. And there's the hippocampus right there. So that's the structure we're talking about. And because we can identify it in an MRI by doing this kind of manipulation that I'm showing you, we can measure it. And it turns out that if you circle the hippocampus in a normal, you can get a, a volume of it. If you circle every slice where you could see it, you add up all the slices. That's the volume of the hippocampus. And in Alzheimer's disease, the volume of the hippocampus is low. 
And it turns out that even under the microscope, and I believe Mike talked a little bit about this too, it turns out that even under the microscope, all those plaques and particularly the tangles that I mentioned, they show up first in the hippocampus and nearby structures. So it turns out that the reason memory is one of the earliest symptoms and the most prominent symptom is because those changes that I described that happen under the microscope, they show up first usually in the memory or language symptoms, uh, parts of the brain. And in those people who have aphasia, where memory wasn't the reason they came in, in those cases often it didn't go to the hippocampus first. It, it went to the part of the brain that has to do with language. And why that happens, Dr. Gordon Timpini talked a little bit about it. But this is the, the typical thing. But on the other hand, one of the problems is although memory and those memory systems are earliest involved parts of the brain, by the time we see patients who have well-established dementia, it's not the only part of the brain. So the image I'm showing you here now is another kind of three-dimensional, these are kind of three-dimensional left and right versions of the images of the brain. And this is if you cut the brain in half and looked at the surface right in the middle, just kind of opened it up like that. And everywhere that's red and yellow is, um, is a, an indication of if you took a group of, let's say, 50 patients with Alzheimer's and compared their brains to 50 n normal older people, same age, age range, these yellow and red areas indicate everywhere that's shrunken compared with normal. And you see those, those areas are all over various parts of the brain. And so it's no surprise then that when I say Alzheimer's isn't limited to those memory problems, that there's plenty of reason for that, because there's a lot of parts of the brain that are already involved with this neurodegenerative process. So what does that really tell us? Well, it's a fairly obvious point is we need to diagnose things earlier. And this is now starting to get into what the field is, is trying to accomplish. So we, we now have this, you know, a natural idea is that people clearly have, they're fine. Then over the years, they develop some memory problems. Then they have this dementia that I've been describing. So clearly that describes a process. And by the time we're seeing patients, they're well into that process. And what we'd like to do is try to diagnose things at a much earlier stage. So how might we recognize that stage? Well, one area that we've thought a lot about is this syndrome called mild cognitive impairment, also mentioned in the past. I'm just going to talk a little more about it. So many patients come into our clinic, and they say, you know, I'm noticing my memory's changing a little bit. Uh, I, I forget some details of the movies and things like that, but I don't forget a whole movie, and I can still do my taxes, and their family agrees. And so, you know, once upon a time in the, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we would have said, you know, if, if, you don't, if you're complaining like this, you're, you're fine. You definitely don't have this disease we're worried about. And since the 80s, 90s particularly, and in in this last 15 years, we've learned not to be so, so cavalier. And then, in fact, many patients who ultimately do get worse and develop what we all recognize as a dementia, they were complaining or their family was complaining. And, you know, we wouldn't have listened to them in the past, but now we recognize that those complaints are meaningful. Um, on the other hand, at that stage, they sound like what a lot of us complain of. Who doesn't complain of some word-finding trouble or a little trouble with remembering the details of, of, a, of a movie or reading a book passage twice? We all do it a little bit. And so now the difficulty is how do we decide, how do we separate between what's pathological and what's more a normal part of aging? And that's really still where our field is kind of wrestling with those issues, but we have some new tools. So as I said, um, these symptoms are pretty mild, but they're meaningful. And it turns out that if you recruit, let's say, you know, a few hundred people with symptoms 
with MCI, mild cognitive impairment, that about 20 to 40%, depending on the setting, will ultimately develop dementia. That sounds pretty ominous. On the other hand, 50 to 60% to 80, depending on the setting, don't. So, you know, glass half filled, glass half empty. But needless to say, we need to understand both sides of those coins that coin, who's really at risk and who's not at risk, despite sounding just like the other people. Um, and, and of course, those, this stage, we, when we learn who's at risk, that's the stage that we want to intervene. We don't, we don't want to wait till people get severe enough that it's not a difficult question anymore. So that's, how, that's really where we're focusing now. Um, as I mentioned, these problems can be mistaken for normal aging. Right now, we recognize that some of our memory tests can be very helpful and that the actual memory te- uh, performance on some of our tests is more severe in patients with MCI who ultimately do get worse with dementia. So we use those tests, but we don't have any foolproof t- tests yet. Um, so, uh, so now this is just reiterating that obviously MCI now represents, the, or mild cognitive impairment, represents this intermediate stage. So what are we trying to do then? Well, I've alluded to this over time. You know, we, what we need to do is which patients with mild cognitive impairment, for instance, get worse, will get worse. How fast are they going to get worse if they get worse? And of course, um, which ones won't get worse? And also, all I've talked about is Alzheimer's disease because it's the most common and because that's what I was told I'm supposed to talk about today. But there are other dementias. You'll hear about them, uh, and you've heard about some other ones already. Another goal is... Um, if, if they're developing uh, symptoms, how do we know it's from Alzheimer's disease or not? Because it, when we develop treatments for these plaques and tangles, we have to give it to the correct people. So those are really, in summary, our goals. So we, 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 you know, for a while we've recognized that one of the things we could do is measure those atrophy changes that I was talking about. So you can measure the size of the hippocampus, and what you can see in this image, you have to, it takes a little getting used to the colors, but what you can see is if you look at this red part, that this person's hippocampus has shrunken over time between when they were normal and 10 years later when they developed Alzheimer's disease going through this stage of mild cognitive impairment. So what we recognize then is that tracking the size of the brain and comparing how much people are changing over time to how much they should change is one way we might, we might uh, get more information. Another one is new kinds of imaging. This has been mentioned in the past, but there's now for the last eight, nine years, almost 10, a new kind of PET scan. So for those who don't remember, a PET scan is a kind of scan where um, uh, you put somebody in a camera or a scanner that, that detects radioactive um, uh, energy coming out of a radioactive ion. And basically, the camera doesn't care where the radioactivities come from, so you decide what the camera's looking at by where, what kind of chemical you put the radioactivity in. So the most common kind of PET scan is to give somebody uh, sugar that's labeled with the radioactivity, and wherever the sugar goes, you get a picture of the brain. Traditionally, in Alzheimer's disease, that was a way to try to get a sense of if the brain is eating up less sugar in different places, we would try to use that as a way to see if the brain is healthy or not and where, it's, where the problems are. But now they have this new chemical uh, called, well, there's a couple of different ones. They, they, they're all, there are several chemicals that now they, what we've discovered is they stick to amyloid. And so basically, if you inject that chemical, it circulates for the body, and then eventually it leaves. But on, but, but, so what you do is you do the injection of this chemical, you wait 20 or 30 minutes, and you take the picture. 
And if the signals, there's enough radioactivity from the head that's still high, the only conclusion is that there's still amyloid in the brain. And that's, so now, and we've done studies even where you're comparing the images to somebody who's died, so we know exactly how well they correlate, and it's quite reliable. So if there's amyloid in the brain, um, it, 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 on this image, it's pretty likely that it's really there in, in life. Um, and, and lo and behold, you know, many patients with mild cognitive impairment, they have amyloid that has built up to the point where it's as much as Alzheimer's. So again, typically in brain imaging kinds of research, reds and yellows, these bright colors tend to be higher signal. So, so everywhere that's bright and yellow basically is giving off more signal than it should, in this case indicating amyloid. But on the other hand, some patients with mild cognitive impairment don't have any amyloid. Are they really fine? Do they just have normal aging? Do they have another disease? Still an open question. um, So, And the other thing I'll just briefly allude to, of course, it helps with this differential diagnosis. Some people have clear dementia. It's not a MCI anymore, and yet they still don't have amyloid. And so this is a very useful way to try to decide what the cause is, at least if it's Alzheimer's or not Alzheimer's. So so how do we try to treat this disorder? Well, um, uh, first of all, if people are developing memory problems they're concerned about, needless to say, you want to go to a doctor who can think about all those medical problems I mentioned and make sure that any that are identified can be dealt with and hopefully the memory problems resolve. Um, but if they don't, you may, someone may have neurodegenerative disease and that's not completely treatable. Uh, the current treatment is really a chemical sort of adjustment to the brain. What we've recognized is that, you know, I said how Alzheimer's doesn't affect the whole brain. It starts out affecting the hippocampus and st- structures nearby. Another part of the brain that it affects is a deep structure in here, which makes this chemical called acetylcholine and sends that acetylcholine to the whole rest of the brain. And that part of the brain turns out it's also really hard hit in Alzheimer's. So in addition to all the other problems that these nerve cells are having, they're kind of deprived of this acetylcholine that they're used to having. So what we can do is boost the level of acetylcholine, but with a chemical that, that causes it to be broken down less, so there's more of it around. And that helps a little bit. What the data shows is that if you follow people over time who are on placebo, you can measure that their memory or other kinds of cognitive scores get worse over time, whereas people who are on uh, these cholinesterase inhibitors, their memory gets worse, but not as quickly. And what we've shown is that as long as you're on the medicine, your memory is a little better than it would have been. But it's therefore no surprise that if we offer somebody Aricept or one of the other cholinesterase inhibitors in clinic, we have to warn them not to expect too much and to kind of put faith in the, re- the many studies which have replicated this finding and saying it is doing something, but it would be difficult to know it for yourself, and you just have to kind of accept the, the research findings that it is doing something. So we do offer it, and we use it, and sometimes people feel that it helps. It's hard to prove. But more importantly, it's not enough, and it's not where, you know, we're not stopping there. So also there are psychiatric symptoms I've mentioned, and essentially what you should know is that People have tried to figure out which psychiatric drugs, which kinds of treatments might help, and it's been difficult to prove that certain drugs are really helpful in this setting. It's difficult. So, but we still try them, and often um, if someone's depressed who has Alzheimer's disease, they can still respond to an antidepressant, or if they have uh, um, anger issues and can't control their, their emotions, that medicines to calm them down may help. But it's a little more of a trial and error process than we would like it, despite many studies. 
one of the things we stress, therefore, is to start out by trying to avoid medicines. And there's a lot of good research showing uh, what kinds of manipulations to the environment um, uh, and what kinds of um, interactions between the caregivers and the patient can help to avoid many of these problems. And they probably work in many cases as well as any medicine. We make a big stress out of that. And for instance, at our clinic, we have a whole clinic that's dedicated to working with families to figure out how to address a behavioral problem without medication first. And then if we need medication, they can help us monitor how it's going. Um, the last set of treatments I'll talk about is things that are really directed at the underlying problem, which is this accumulation of amyloid. So, um, so, there, so uh, really, there, over the last 15 years, there have been many different agents trying to get rid of this A-beta that's in these plaques. They're all trying to basically inhibit the, to clear it out or to inhibit its accumulating in the first place. Uh, and many of them have been uh, immune things like vaccines that are um, antibodies against the beta amyloid. And um, unfortunately, um, they haven't completely uh, um, uh, uh, sort of fulfilled their promise yet. So, so uh, bapinuzumab is uh, one of these antibodies. And there have been several trials with either bapinuzumab or other similar drugs. And uh, what we've even been able to show is that using amyloid imaging, um, we can show some evidence that the amyloid did go away when people had the bapinuzumab. So here's um, ba uh, a person uh, uh, who, in a bapinuzumab trial, uh, before and after, and you can see that the amyloid signal is lower. Um, you know, after the, at the end of the trial versus at the beginning, whereas in the placebo, it's actually a little bit more. So it seems to have worked in terms of clearing some of that amyloid, but if you do things like follow how people are doing with the clinical measures, like their cognitive scores over time, it didn't seem to affect their cognition. So it's sort of doing what it's supposed to do, but not what we want yet. And we've had to struggle with that. And one of the things we're struggling is, is, is amyloid maybe the wrong target? Are we treating the wrong thing? Or maybe we're treating too late, or maybe some combination. So, so new strategies are being tried. There's a lot more focus on treating mild cognitive impairment rather than dementia. Most of the studies that I described that are similar to that bapinuzumab study were in patients who had established dementia. So there are many more studies looking at mild cognitive impairment. There are even some studies looking at people who are cognitively normal but have amyloid in their brain and aren't feeling any symptoms of it. So, so that, that idea of maybe we're too late, that's being explored in research right now. But also there's this other agent that we talked about called tau, this other chemical. That's floating in there, and maybe we should be treating that. So in the last five years, really, only, there's been a lot of development of agents to try to clean up that pathological tau, and they're starting to come into uh, uh, drug trials. And so lots of different angles are being tried. The last thing I want to talk about is prevention. Um, uh, so there are lots of things that have been talked about uh, um, that can uh, help protect the brain health as we age. Dr. Kramer talked a lot about inflammation and vascular changes and how these uh, uh, kinds of interventions can help with that. But the one thing I want to show you is it can also directly help with this process of accumulating amyloid. So what they've shown in mice, for instance, is that if you look at the accumulation of amyloid, that it's um, prevented in trained mice. So... Um, Oh, this is a difficult slide. Um, 
uh, essentially, I'll come back to that. But, but this is the one I wanted to show you, which is that if you look at patients and you categorize them based on their exercise performance, what they've shown is, is that the people who have the highest level of exercise in an older population have the lowest amount of amyloid in their brain. And in this kind of study, the amount of exercise they would usually talk about is sort of what the American Heart Association recommends, like 150 minutes of moderate exercise a day. So the point is, it's not just fixing maybe inflammation or general things of aging, but it really might interfere with the accumulation of this amyloid that's causing the problem in Alzheimer's disease. So that's the message I want, or the messages I wanted to give. So dementia, as we've, I think, repeatedly said through the course, is not a whole diagnosis. It's just describing the problem in, in this way that I talked about. It's the severe symptoms of cognitive impairment with impact on everyday life. Um, there are some treatments for Alzheimer's disease based on manipulating the chemistry a little bit, but they're not effective enough. They're not what we want. Um, that better treatments are being developed in the lab, and they are being brought forward into research studies. Um, uh, and we, we still have a lot to uh, learn about the best timing and, and, and maybe combination of drugs that need to be used. And a healthy lifestyle, for instance, exercise, uh, can both prevent you know, inflammation and other things that are association, but also maybe interfere with the development of the, these very specific pathological changes. There's other data for cognitive training that's very similar. So, um, so that's, uh, that's all I wanted to say. Thanks, uh, Howie, so much. Uh, Thanks, Michael Geshwin, for putting on this mini medical uh, school uh, symposium, and uh, thanks to all of you. Uh, I think there's no crowd like a San Francisco uh, Bay Area crowd. Uh, uh, we're very lucky to be here. So I'm going to talk about frontotemporal dementia, which is a disease I've been interested in since um, I, I uh, was a medical student. And um, uh, I think one of the things about frontotemporal dementia is it challenges... Um, every idea we have about who we are, why we stay the way we are, and um, uh, why other people uh, change or, or uh, why people do things that are incomprehensible. So I, I thought I'd start, real case, changed a little bit to protect the people involved, but I saw it this week. It's not unusual, and I want you to have all of your hypotheses about this, and then when I finish, um, maybe you'll have different hypotheses. So so uh, CEO, very, very important person uh, uh, in their mid-60s, uh, law-abiding, uh, very special individual. Um, at uh, this year's uh, Christmas party, um, he brought, uh, along with his wife, uh, invited his uh, recent uh, friend, an escort, uh, 22 years of age, um, and uh, brought along with the escort uh, her boyfriend, um, a heroin uh, dealer. And um, uh, so uh, just imagine the, the Christmas party and uh, imagine, you know, what you would think if you were there and you knew this gentleman. And so, you know, there are a lot of reasons uh, why that might have happened, you know. I mean, and I think a lot of us have been taught throughout our lives, you know, certain paradigms. Well, you know, is this a irreverent, uh, irreligious person that... that you know, has lost his way. Uh, is this someone uh, who is uh, taking drugs? Is this someone who didn't uh, get taught by his parents uh, 
uh, to respect women? Um, is this someone who was abused as a child in some way, and uh, this is the way he or she reacts later in life? Um, you know, I think these are all reasonable hypotheses, and I think, um, uh, of course, that's not why he did this. And I think I'm going to describe to you this fascinating disease that I study, frontotemporal dementia, and I think you'll, I think maybe have some different hypotheses about why all of this happened. So. This is a memory and aging center. We have a retreat every year. We had it right over here. Um, and uh, I think um, we're really hopeful that uh, treatments for all these diseases are very, very close. Uh, I think uh, 2015, we don't have that blockbuster therapy that will change the world. But um, 2020, I think, uh, may well. So frontotemporal dementia, the old theory, it used to be called Pick's disease. Um, and I was taught don't pick Pick's disease. So the idea is so rare you'll never see a case. And then even if you did see a case, uh, you wouldn't be able to differentiate it from Alzheimer's disease or any other condition that was degenerative. So um, we've learned that that dictum is wrong. Um, it's the most common cause for neurodegenerative disease in people under the age of 60. Uh, it is uh, about as common as Alzheimer's disease in people uh, under the age of 65. Um, it is often misdiagnosed, so I think every study, and you'll, you'll understand why when, when I finish, so I, I think every study that is done on the prevalence or incidence of this disease greatly underestimates uh, who has the illness because a lot of these people end up in psychiatric facilities. Uh, they end up uh, misdiagnosed as uh, having psychiatric difficulties. They end up on the street. Uh, they end up um, uh, murdered. Uh, they end up in jail. So I, I think we greatly underestimate uh, how common this disease is. It's a very interesting disease. Uh, uh, about 40% of the cases, we think gene or genes that... Uh, we carry our uh, major contributors to this. In some people, maybe 10%, if you have the wrong gene, with almost 100% certainty, you will get sick with this disease. And you'll begin to behave probably like the CEO I described uh, you know, in, in the beginning of my talk. Um, we see an attack, unlike the disease that Dr. Rosen described, uh, uh, in the front part of the brain. And this is, uh, when I was growing up, was absolutely, truly mis mysterious area. Uh, we really didn't have the foggiest idea what the frontal lobes did, and there was almost no study uh, on the frontal lobes. 40% uh, of the cortex, 30% of the brain, yet we knew almost nothing about it. Uh, I think from frontotemporal dementia and some other diseases of the frontal lobes, we're starting to learn that this is the fundamental core uh, of who we are, uh, how we behave, how we interpret the world, how we interpret other people's feelings, how we feel other people's feelings. So when this part of the brain is attacked, and it, it can be degenerative or other causes, you see profound changes in who somebody is or, or, or had been. It attacks the right side of the brain predominantly. So isn't that interesting? We have a disease of the right side of the brain that affects predominantly behavior. 
we have really, I think, two very different frontal lobes. We have one frontal lobe that is involved with language, and that's the left side. Um, you can injure it and see very little change in behavior. You have the other side, which uh, has very little to do with language, but lots to do uh, with social behavior. And when we hit uh, uh, that side of the brain, uh, no language difficulty, but profound disorder of uh, social decorum. So we have this behavioral variant, uh, which is what I'm particularly interested in, and I'll talk mostly about this. And then we have the language variants that start on the left side of the brain and begin with, as a language disorder. And I think the theme about all these diseases is those plaques and tangles that Howie showed you have nothing to do with these diseases. They're a totally different set of genes, proteins, uh, that uh, make us susceptible to this disease. And then another comment about why we should pick Pick's disease, and, and, and this is an image of uh, Anne McKee from Boston University, and it looks at this tau protein, um, and it looks at the front part of the brain in the temporal lobe, and it shows everything that is brown shouldn't be there. So what you see here is the most intensely staining amygdala, uh, anterior temporal lobe, orbital frontal cortex, just filled with tau. This is a football player um, who had been perfectly normal in, in their behavior. They developed a progressive social disorder, eventually committed suicide. And uh, Anne and the group at BU discovered that this was a massive destruction of the anterior temporal lobes and the frontal lobes. They call this now chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's a really important disease uh, for a lot of reasons. I think, one, it emphasizes how important protecting the head is for protecting us from neurodegenerative conditions. But also, I think it's going to be uh, one of the first treatable diseases because I think in this population of people who have had head trauma, whether it's football, war, um, uh, some sort of motor vehicle accident, when this disease starts, we're able to recognize it pretty early now uh, because of some of the advances that you've heard about in this mini uh, medical symposium. So I, I think this is going to be the first, uh, one of the first treatable forms of frontotemporal dementia. Okay, so saying the same thing, frontotemporal dementia, shown here in blue, attacks the front part of the brain, spares the back part of the brain, in fact, early on, Bill Seeley from our group has shown that the back part of the brain is actually increased in activity in the early stages. What does that, what does that uh, mean? Well, sometimes we see people whose uh, visual spatial uh, skills increase. Sometimes we see people with increased artistic interest and ability. I'll show you one example of that later. So very, very distinctive disorder with a very distinctive anatomy. It spreads fast. So um, this here uh, is just showing visually um, our experience uh, with frontotemporal dementia. So when we see people, and they're incredibly disturbed behaviorally, um, but by the time we see them, there is already uh, evidence for loss of tissue in the anterior temporal lobe, the frontal lobe. That's shown in blue. And this is Howie's work within five months. There's very extensive spread of this disease in, in, into adjacent areas. And by uh, one year, uh, there are areas that are red uh, where tissue loss is uh, extreme. Very, very fast. We think it goes about twice as fast as Alzheimer's disease. 
And when you, when you think about this local spread, the way this disease spreads along a, a very specific circuit, when you think about the patient with the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, where there is all of that tau in a very specific local brain region, it makes you wonder about the whole disease process. And Stan Prusner here at UCSF has said, these diseases uh, all spread like what he got the Nobel Prize for, discovering the prion. So this is misfolded tau, Mark Diamond, uh, uh, originally at UCSF, now in Dallas, shows here in blue uh, the, the tau in one cell. And then in cell culture, he shows it spreads this misfolded protein from one cell to the next. Frightening, but also from a scientific point of view, really exciting, because I think we believe that we can attack the tau as it spreads from one cell to the, the next with antibodies, with other approaches, and really stop these diseases cold if we can get them in the early uh, enough stages. So we, we have three big genes associated with uh, the frontotemporal dementia. And again, these are genes, if you have one, you will get sick. And I first started uh, studying families with this uh, in the 1980s, and they're the most interesting families because, of course, this does, disease does not begin with a dementia at age uh, 50 or 60. What it begins with is a psychiatric disorder, subtle changes in addictive behaviors in the 20s, 30s, uh, people sometimes uh, exhibiting antisocial behavior, getting arrested uh, for things that they shouldn't do, uh, loss of social decorum at work. So the first people that see these gene carriers are not neurologists, or, and they're usually not even psychiatrists. They're people in our criminal justice system. They're in the rehabilitation units. Um, they're marriage counselors who are trying to understand why these marriages are starting to disintegrate. Um, and uh, these are the genes. Howie uh, has a major grant with Mayo Clinics thinking about how to recognize these early psychiatric symptoms with these different genes uh, and also beginning to think about how we can develop therapies for these people. We don't want to treat people when they're 60 and bringing their 22-year-old girlfriend to the Christmas party uh, because the frontal lobes have disintegrated we want to treat this disease when they're 22 uh, and uh, really without much disease at all uh, and prevent the spread across these critically important social parts of the brain. And I, I, I show this slide here because I think it tells us a little bit about who we are. And so we had a big international meeting here uh, where we invited all the world's leaders uh, and asked them whether they had families with those three major genes associated with frontotemporal dementia. And uh, basically, you can see the whole sweep of India and China, almost no gene carriers found. I don't think it's because it's, it's rare in these countries. It may be less common than in the West, but I think these uh, areas have just not been systematically studied. And imagine a disease that is considered psychiatric and is associated with increased drinking or antisocial behavior. This is just not going to be part of a systematic genetic study. Um, so uh, one of the fascinating things that we learned in this um, is the migration of populations. So uh, we believe that one of the major genes called C9, which is shown here, um, in blue, dark blue, uh, probably occurred in a founder about 6,000 years ago in Finland. And so when you go to Finland, what is the major cause for frontotemporal dementia? It's C9 mutations. 
Um, and then we, uh, you know, talked with all the investigators across Northern Europe. And clearly, if you were in Germany uh, or in uh, Sweden um, or, or even in France, this is the most common genetic mutation. This is the migration of families from one area in the world, you know, fairly close to where the origin of the gene was. When you go into southern Italy and Spain, other mutations are much more common. Again, founders from these uh, parts of the world. So uh, uh, progranulin is another genetic mutation. We found a place in, in the Basque country in, in Spain where this is a very common genetic mutation, a single founder spread uh, in that region. Um, and, and so these are areas of the world that are going to be very important as we start to think about uh, uh, defeating frontotemporal dementia uh, because we need large numbers of people for clinical trials and uh, we need blockbuster uh, medicines that will treat the disease in the first uh, years of the illness. What are the research criteria for this? There's no research criteria like this anywhere in neurology because they're all psychiatric symptoms. And I think counterintuitively, we're taught to believe all of these things are caused by the way that we're reared. And I'm not saying that rearing doesn't have a major effect on, on, on the way we are. It surely does. But these diseases take people who have perfectly normal social decorum and make them disinhibited and addictive. That's uh, the first criteria. Uh, people who are energetic and full of initiative become apathetic, uh, inert. People who were loving and really cared about the, uh, people around them uh, lose emotional reactivity, sympathy, empathy for other people. Uh, people start to develop perseverative, repetitive behaviors, such as drinking uh, again and again, going to the bathroom over and over again, collecting things, um, hoarding. It's just an amazing uh, change in behavior, overeating. So these are the manifestations of someone whose frontal lobes begin to disintegrate. doesn't happen overnight. Often very ephemeral, very hard for a family to say, this is when the illness began, because there's just subtle changes in who we are, and we become someone very, very different. Um, this area, uh, Howie has taught me quite a bit about, and this is emotion. And uh, I think um, these are some things that we've seen in frontotemporal dementia that you, you don't see with many other diseases. Lack of concern for a loved one is ill, who is ill. Uh, uh, we have uh, many examples of people whose loved one is rushed to the hospital for something very serious. Rather than worrying about that, they're back home working on the taxes or working in the garden. Um, uh, people who are cruel to children, animals, elderly. Lack of concern when other people are sad. Rude comments to others. Loss of respect for the interpersonal space. Patient with frontotemporal dementia in an elevator is a disaster because we have rules in an elevator about not going too close, not touching other people, not saying things to them. These are all the rules that are broken if your frontal lobes don't work uh, properly. Um, and I'm going to show you just a few very quickly, because I want Dr. Tanner to have a full half hour. Um, just examples. This is a gentleman who was lovely man, uh, uh, very scholarly, um, and uh, suddenly in the setting of uh, this disease, he doesn't care about his wife or his children. His children almost drowned in, in the river because he was working on something and didn't care to catch them. 
he's, he's starting to write limericks that he never wrote before. And this is about our ex-president Bush. Forget your politics. Believe me, this is inappropriate. Okay. This is a doctor's office, and here is our... This one. You put some thought into that. I did? Yeah. And then I have a rooter one about W. Fart gun W sits around in his underwear, eating beans by the pound and farting all over his chair. Fart gun W stripping his whole cabinet away. Got it. Yeah. Which reminds me, we got a lot of fart humor this year. Yeah. This has been the year of the fart humor. Yeah. And the farts, yes. Lots of farts. Lots of singing my love to fart. Yeah. So someone very serious, socially correct, suddenly uh, very, very inappropriate uh, at a medical evaluation. Here's some of this loss of sensitivity, and it's a very interesting reaction. Uh, So here you can see a, a. patient uh, we came to love and uh, knew the family very well. Um, and uh, Shenley Glenn, uh, one of our research assistants, taped them over a Christmas holiday. And she's on the phone and making cookies. And then... We need to, to get this in here. Hi. Uh, can you give us a heads up when you get close? Because Shenley would like to videotape that as you all... Come in. Thought. Just a minute. Honey, ah, don't touch that. Okay. That's hot. You burnt your hand. So you mo- it's hot. It's warm. You cannot it's warm. open the oven and pull that out, sweetie. So you might say, well, he just doesn't feel pain. He felt pain. He touched it. He pulled back. His brain is not organized to tell him that the pain itself is important, and he must protect himself from that. This is part of the degenerative disease. We've had many people with this disease who've harmed themselves, not because they can't feel, but because they don't really care when these uh, uh, threats to them emerge. And then just one area that we've studied extensively in the lab, and that is this behavior. So, fascinating behavior um, emerged in the setting of this disease, and we have a wonderful collaborator, uh, Bob Levinson and Virginia Sturm, who study uh, disgust in the laboratory. So, something we would never think of uh, comes from the brain, but it really does. And so, uh, we ask uh, patients to look at a film that should evoke disgust, And we see that our frontotemporal dementia patients show none of the facial expression that we associate with disgust. Their autonomic nervous system doesn't react the way many of you did when they uh, see that. We don't get an increased heart rate. The system involved with detecting and feeling disgust is absent. And this explains, we believe, some of the behaviors that we uh, uh, find very commonly in the setting of frontotemporal dementia. Okay. Loss of empathy, probably driven very specifically, no matter who we are, no matter how we were, by how well this uh, anterior temporal lobe is working. It detects faces, it detects emotions on faces, and it helps us to feel empathy for others. If we see loss of empathy in the setting of degenerative disease, it's almost always frontotemporal dementia because of this very specific anatomy. 
What are they diagnosed with, these patients? They're diagnosed as having psychiatric conditions. Uh, no surprise. This is a paper done about the patients that we see. Uh, if you're a woman and you have frontotemporal dementia, the odds are 7 out of 10 that your physician will call this psychiatric. A male, only about 50%. So I, I think shows a bias, I think, of physicians, but it also shows that our whole medical system is not geared to, oriented, thinking about um, why people behave and misbehave. It's anatomically driven. And particularly, and this is what my teacher, Frank Benson, taught me, when this happens uh, as a change after we have well-established patterns of personality and behavior, something in the brain has changed. And if I think if there's anything that frontotemporal dementia has taught me is that we are very much who we are for most of our life. And when we dramatically change, uh, I immediately think of the frontal lobes and loss of function in those areas. So I think I'm going to stop there and uh, appreciate uh, we'll, we'll have a chance at the end to take questions. So, Carly. Parkinson's disease uh, was described in 1817 by James Parkinson, and one of the interesting things is he described uh, six cases, and three of them he didn't even examine. He saw them walking down the street. So this is first and foremost been recognized as a motor disorder, a problem with movement, and um, something that came on gradually. It's a late-life disorder. We now think of it as the second most common neurodegenerative disorder, so the same problem of neurons gradually dying, very gradual onset, occurs in late-life. And this is what James Parkinson saw. He saw a tremor, and characteristically tremor at rest, slowed movement, akinesia, absence, but really slow, bradykinesia, gait and balance problems, so loss of the normal way to control your balance when you're walking, and also a stiffness of the muscles called rigidity, which really you have to feel, but this is a, an example of someone with a, an asymmetry, so you can almost kind of see what's called cogwilling in him. So here's the tremor. You can see this man has a lot of tremors on his hands, in his jaw, in his legs, and it's classically a tremor at rest, so when he's sitting quietly, and keep an eye on that, because when he raises his hand, you'll see the tremor abates. This man is demonstrating very slowed movement. He's been asked to move the comb and see how slow he is in executing those movements. And look at his face. The characteristic face in Parkinsonism is called a masked face because the, the normal play of emotion across the face is lost. Sometimes people are misperceived as being um, depressed when, and that can be part of Parkinsonism, but uh, it isn't always. Sometimes it's just that loss of the normal facial expression. Um, this is a really dramatic example of the gait and balance problem. So this woman cannot maintain her standing balance. She has to be held, and she cannot take steps. So her movements are so slow, and her postural reflexes are so impaired that if she weren't supported, she would fall backwards like that, on block, we call it. I think we lost our rigidity, but the rigidity is um, called cogwheeling, and I'll go forward here a little bit. So 
This is a man with beginnings of Parkinsonism, so it's affecting the right side. You can see there's a little tremor there. See how easily the, this limb can be moved passively. And then look at this limb. It's very stiff, and when it's moved, there's all you can almost see the little cogging, and that's classic of Parkinsonism called cogwheel rigidity. You really can't usually see it, but um, that gives you an idea what it is. So this is what Parkinson saw. Um, what we now know is that it occurs everywhere in the world. Um, about 95% uh, of people with Parkinsonism develop these symptoms uh, after age 50. Um, incidents, so new cases increase with increasing age at least through the ninth decade, and it's kind of hard to measure in populations when you get after that because there aren't many people around who are that age. Um, more men than women develop Parkinsonism, um, so about three men to two women on average. Um, and there may be, for certain reasons, um, uh, ethnic or geographic reasons uh, that, that some populations are at greater risk than others, and some of these are genes, but some of them might be environmental as well. Um, it is not clear whether there are actually more cases proportionally in the population over time, but we do know that the absolute number of cases over time is going to increase and fairly dramatically because the population is aging pretty much throughout the world, even in relatively less uh, socioeconomically developed countries, but certainly in more developed countries. So just one estimate is that between 2005 and 2030, we'd expect the number of cases to double. So real epidemic uh, from a public health perspective, and that applies to the other disorders we, you've been hearing about through this whole session as well. So the classical pathology of Parkinsonism focuses on the parts of the brain that have to do with um, in sort of involuntary control of movement, so-called the basal ganglia. So this is the cortex. You've been hearing a lot about cortex when hearing about thinking and memory and, and uh, those problems. This is further down, somewhere back here in the sort of in the neck or above the neck, but towards the neck. And this is the normal part. So you can see how it's dark. That's called substantia nigra. That dark pigment is a healthy one. When those nerve cells are injured or dying, it becomes pale. And this is the example in someone with Parkinson's disease. This is a protein aggregation disease, too. The protein here that's involved is a different one. It's called alpha-synuclein. And um, this is an example of the clump of protein that happens inside of the nerve cell. That's a sign of injury, and it's the way we diagnose Parkinson's post-mortem after someone's died, is you see those characteristic findings. And this is a stain looking at nerve cells and showing you the dark stuff is alpha-synuclein. So most of those clumps are um, very intensely showing this alpha-synuclein protein, which has some of the same kinds of characteristics. We don't really know what it does, but it probably, too, has something to do with microtubules, and we think it, too, probably has some of those migratory prion-like uh, characteristics. So back in 1967, before we had any really good treatments for Parkinson's disease, um, two people, Peggy Hone and Melvin Yar, looked at their whole clinic. They did a kind of a cross-section, and they described the stages of Parkinson's disease. And it was sort of a um, 
migrating around the body kind of way of describing stages, starting with unilateral one side, bilateral two sides, then also having gait and balance problems, then having more gait and balance problems, and then finally ending up uh, being uh, wheelchair-bound, essentially, and not able to get around. Almost 40 years later, in, in 2006, um, this is a drawing from Bill Langston, who, who put this together. Um, we had a much broader idea of Parkinsonism, and we're just starting to evolve it. So this sort of shows we're coming out of our state of ignorance, showing the, the parable of the, the blind man and the elephant. Whichever part of the elephant you look at is what you think the disease is, right? So we started to recognize the Parkinsonism, the motor part, is one thing. But there's also significant dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, so the part that controls um, your uh, blood pressure and your, your bowel movements and your uh, uh, sweating mechanisms and uh, salivation, a lot of unconscious things like that, um, constipation. We also recognize that there's a significant component of um, mood disorders, psychiatric syndromes, and dementia. There's a really prominent aspect of Parkinsonism that's a sleep disorder, and interestingly, loss of smell. So loss of smell turns out to be an almost universal feature of people with Parkinsonism, and this is a long list of the many things that, that are wrong there. Um, looking in populations, what we began to see is that some of those features happened well before the onset of the motor syndrome. So this is work I did with colleagues in Honolulu where we were able to follow people forward from midlife until they developed a disease or didn't and, and passed away, and then many of the people in this population donated their brains so that we could study them after they died. And one of the things we found is that if you have an olfactory deficit, a loss of smell perception in midlife, you are much more likely to develop Parkinsonism later in life. And then Lewy bodies are those pathologic hallmarks I showed you. You're much more likely to have Lewy bodies in your brain if you have a smell deficit, even if you didn't get the motor signs of Parkinsonism. So it seems like the smelling part goes wrong first. Similarly, constipation. And now we found you can see Lewy bodies or the same kinds of clumps of that alpha-synuclein protein in the bowel in the part of the nervous system that makes your GI tract move. Um, and you can see that, um, again, before people actually show motor features of Parkinsonism. Similarly, there's a complicated, we're still trying to piece it apart, relationship between physical activity, um, body habitus, so obesity, um, diabetes, uh, what we call metabolic syndrome, and risk for Parkinsonism. So these are still things we're trying to understand, but certainly this problem occurs well before the onset of disease. So this is just a little schematic showing some of the early features that are part of the syndrome of Parkinsonism, at least in some people. Not everyone has everything. So reduced smell sensibility, Rapid eye movement sleep behavior disorder. So people who start acting out their dreams. Usually when we dream, we don't move much. We breathe, of course, but we don't move our arms and legs. People with REM sleep behavior disorder are dreaming, and they're moving, and they're punching, and their bed partner is sometimes seriously injured, or they fall out of bed or you know injure themselves. It's a very 
disabling dramatic disorder. And it predicts the development of Parkinson's disease or another neurodegenerative disorder um, within a, a number of years, maybe as long as 20 years. So it's a long process. Um, other things, changes in autonomic function. So we've recognized these prodromal features to be very important in identifying people that we think of at risk. And now the way we think about Parkinson's is there's this preclinical time when we're not very good yet at, at characterizing it. There's the prodromal period, which can be four to 20 years when all those other features are happening. And then you develop the motor syndrome and the cognitive syndrome that is what we formerly thought of as Parkinson's disease. So this is really exciting because just as you were talking about in some of the, the cognitive disorders, if we can find out, especially here, something preclinically, but even here, something in that prodromal period that can slow or stop progression, that's exactly what we want to do. So our goals in therapy are just that, slower halt progression, relieve signs and symptoms, and avoid the side effects of therapy. We can't do number one at all. We can kind of do number two, and we can kind of do number three, but not that well. So while we've been doing this for a long time, there's still plenty of room for improvement. Um, the central aspect of treatment in Parkinson's disease is the same now as it was in the early 70s when it first started being used, and that is to change uh, the dopamine system. There's a dopamine deficiency. Those dark cells I was showing you, the pigmented cells, use dopamine as a brain chemical messenger. So how one nerve cell speaks to another, it uses a chemical, goes across a little gap, gets recognized by the next nerve cell, and it makes a kind of an electrical impulse that kind of keeps things moving down the road. And in Parkinson's, dopamine is that central chemical. And what we do to treat people is primarily some variation on dealing with dopamine. So the simple, the first stuff that we used is Cinemat. It's levodopa. It's a precursor. It gets into the brain and gets made into that chemical messenger, dopamine. And it's amazing that that actually happens and it works, but it does. And we still use that as a mainstay of therapy. There are lots of variations on it. So controlled release, kind of... Kind of tiny time pills to try to get it to last longer and go more smoothly. This is a continuous infusion where you get a pump implanted into your GI tract, and it gives you a much more steady um, rate of levodopa. These are ways to kind of modify enzymes that break it down and give a longer um, duration of benefit of, of the uh, levodopa, a longer-lasting dopamine. These are chemicals that look like it, so they're drugs that fool the brain into thinking it's dopamine. And then there are a few others that we use that aren't affecting the dopamine system directly but indirectly, but most of it's dopamine. So that the good news is that it works fairly well, and especially in the beginning. The bad news is that um, it's not perfect. We can't stop the disease progression and there are side effects. And this is a long list of the side effects, but some of the most disabling ones are psychiatric side effects and dyskinesias. So the psychiatric side effects include um, visual hallucinations. People see shapes or forms or animals um, and can believe they're real and can actually, they can become frightening and people can be afraid of them and it can change their behavior. And dyskinesias, abnormal involuntary movements that are caused by the medication, and here's an example 
of what that is. So Parkinson's causes slowness, loss of movement, and that tremor. The Parkinson's therapy causes this other kind of movement called dyskinesia. So this woman is just talking with her doctor, and she's supposedly going to be just sitting still, but instead she has these movements, as you can see, all over her body, her arms, her legs. She's rocking in the chair. Her face is moving. Her neck is moving. And those are dyskinesia. They're called choreic dyskinesia, and the term chorea comes from the Greek word choreos for dance, and you can kind of look at the way those movements go. They're like the sort of stylized Greek dance. But um, they can be equally as disabling and certainly socially troubling uh, as the benefit from the, the Parkinsonism uh, or as the symptoms of the Parkinsonism itself. And what happens to people after a period of time, this is years of having the disease. And Parkinsonism, people can have Parkinson's disease for a long time. I've had patients for 30, 35 years. So it can be a very much more long-lasting uh, disorder. And so you can start out having a really good response to therapy. And then as years go by, what we call the therapeutic window narrows. So by the time you get into the 10 to 15 years of treatment, you're going from having dyskinesia to being bradykinetic, not able to move, frozen and off. And so it becomes a real dilemma. One way we can deal with that a little bit, again, not perfect, but better than just the drugs, is deep brain stimulation surgery. And this is kind of like a heart pacemaker, but you put it into the brain and you put it in the spot that's part of that circuit um, that helps control movements that's disrupted in Parkinson's. And you can program... Uh, an electrical impulse that happens and restores some of the imbalance in the brain. So people get a, um, an implant in their brain and a little electrical uh, uh, lead, and um, they have something implanted under the skin in the chest that goes down the, like this, and um, it gives some improvement of benefit. It's brain surgery. We don't start it right away. But when people are having good response to therapy, but up and down like that, uh, it's a good intervention. And there are a couple of ways it can be done. One is you, do, you target this part of the brain, so right in that area we were talking about below the cortex called the basal ganglia. And um, you can either do very careful x-rays and, and kind of map things out in three dimensions um, prior to surgery and then put people into surgery while they're awake and put the probe in through this um, stereotactic apparatus that's right here that kind of holds everything in place. And then you ask people to move and respond, and that's kind of how you know you're in the right spot. More recently, work that's been pioneered really here at UCSF, people can be asleep and they can have the surgery within the, an MRI machine so that you don't have to be awake. It's very stressful, as you might imagine, to be awake while people are putting probes in your brain and asking you to move around. Um, and um, it actually works a little bit better um, because they have real-time visualization. So both are options. Um, and here's an example of what you get from DBS. So this is a man who's being asked just to stand and walk in as fast as he can. He's being timed. And this is before, he's on no medication, so we evaluate people off medicine. And he's walking as quickly as he can before DBS surgery. And this is the same man after DBS surgery. 
So it can be a really dramatic change. It allows the medication to be more effective. It diminishes dyskinesias. Um, and for some people, notice the difficulty that man's having in turning before the surgery and look at how well he can go afterwards, right? So this doesn't last forever either. It's still a progressive disorder. The effect still wears off, but it can make a dramatic change in uh, life for a number of people and give them back uh, a number of very good years. Um, another point in terms of treatment, exercise is actually very important. And the one other point I want to make is exercise is also physical activity can actually lower your risk of Parkinson's. So for all of you in the audience, um, it's kind of one more incentive uh, to get yourself out there walking, going to the gym, even ordinary commuting back and forth to work and being physically active. If you look in populations, if you walk to work as opposed to drive to work, you are less likely to get Parkinson's. So an important thing to keep in mind. So one of the things I focused on is etiology or the cause of Parkinson's. And I, I've been interested in that um, partly because if we think if we could understand this, then we'd be better at like treating it or maybe even preventing it. So I spent a lot of time working on it, and I got fascinated early in my career by this story um, so now that you're experts in Parkinson's, you can recognize that this is a masked face. This man is very, very slowly moving. And the interesting story is that this is not, you know, a, a person who um, is 50, 60, 70 years old. This is a man in his 30s who all of a sudden, over the course of a couple of weeks, developed this problem. And so did a number of other people kind of in what we call a cluster, so in a geographic area. And it turned out they had something in common. And what they had in common was that they were all narcotics addicts. But the symptoms were the same as Parkinson's disease, progressive worsening. I won't show you here, but they improved with therapy, postural reflex problems, just like Parkinson's. So uh, Bill Langston in uh, Sunnyvale and uh, Jim Tetrad also there and uh, Paul Ballard all discovered this uh, condition and uh, see the classical resting tremor, and put it all together as kind of a wonderful medical mystery and discovered that it was due to this compound called MPTP, which is kind of a wrong turn. A guy was making, quote, designer drugs in his garage and made a mistake and came up with a poison instead, and they injected it in themselves, and they got sick. Um, so that's not what most people have when they have Parkinson's because they're not drug addicts and they're not injecting drugs. But it was a big clue because it said, oh, my goodness, this is a chemical, and it caused Parkinsonism in humans. And there was a lot of work in the laboratory looking at what does it do and how does it do it. And it led us to be interested in looking at other causes in the environment that might cause Parkinsonism. So just a schematic of some of the things we found so far. A number of chemicals do cause Parkinsonism, also injuries like head injury. Um, we talked about male gender. And I want to talk about head injury for a minute as an example, because it illustrates what I think is the central reason that most people get Parkinsonism. So in lots of studies, this is a diagram, every, every line going this way, is a, it represents a study, and all the dots that are to the, this side of this straight line show the risk of Parkinson's is increased if you have a head injury, right? 
So more than 70% of studies show that, but head injury is very common. And, you know, most people who have head injuries don't actually get Parkinsonism. Uh, there's a lot of biologic plausibility, so many things that happen after head injury can also cause Parkinsonism. But why doesn't everybody then get Parkinson's if they had a head injury? So this is what we've discovered looking at many populations where we've carefully looked at exposures and, and characterized uh, disease and looked at genes. Um, and what this is is what we call gene-environment interaction. So the gene we're talking about is the one that codes for that protein called alpha-synuclein. But this is not a mutation that causes disease. This is one little tiny change in this gene um, that just makes it a little bit different from another version of this gene. And the environmental impulse or, or, uh, risk factor is head injury. And what we see is that if you have the gene you're about 50% increased risk of getting Parkinson's. If you have a head injury, and that's all, 70%. But if you have both the gene and the head injury, you have about a 1,000 times greater risk of getting Parkinson's disease. So the gene and the environment together for most people probably cause Parkinson's. And then there's the rest of the story, which are all the things that seem to be inversely related, meaning it actually prevents Parkinson's. So putting it all together, you come up with the equation uh, of gene-environment interaction. There are inherited forms of Parkinsonism. Probably about 10% of Parkinson's is caused by a single strong genetic determinant. But for most people, it's probably the gene-environment interaction that matters. And the important thing about these genes is it gives us important clues to study. We can look at how they affect the body and what they do in experimental settings, and that helps us to try to come up with ideas about treatment. So the take-home is that it, Parkinson's is what we call a complex disorder. So this is just kind of a schematic way of thinking about it. Genetics loads the gun but environment pulls the trigger. So you kind of have to have both of those for most people uh, for Parkinson's. And this is a schematic of how that might look if this pie is all the cases of Parkinsonism. Most of them are going to be this big purple complex mixes. Some of them might be just a couple of genes, a couple of environment. Very few people are going to be just one gene or one environment. And so the thing about that is this last take-home here, is that I think it's a hopeful finding because environment can be changed. Genes can maybe be changed, but environment more easily can probably be changed. And this is an example from some work that my colleagues and I have done in a population called the Agricultural Health Study, which is a group of farmers and their wives where we looked very carefully at their use of pesticides, and several different types of pesticides can be associated with increased risk of Parkinson's. And we looked at whether or not they washed off and they used protective equipment, and they were careful when they mixed and applied pesticides. And what we found is that if farmers used gloves when they applied paraquat or permethrin, these two pesticides that are associated with Parkinson's, this line shows no risk, this red line. They didn't really have an increased risk of Parkinsonism, but the ones who didn't use gloves and wash off if they had a spill and use a respirator if that made sense, were at much greater risk of Parkinsonism. So that's a simple take-home that for people using pesticides gives you, you know, why wouldn't you pick up, you know, good hygiene 
practices and um, you know that's a kind of a no-brainer almost but also I think very very promising for all of us um, in terms of thinking about prevention overall is that here's a very very simple intervention in this exposed population that really did make a measurable change in their risk of disease so Moving forward along that line, we certainly don't have all the answers yet, and we don't have all the complexities worked out, but these are the directions that we're going to try to come up with ways ultimately to do what this slide says, primary prevention, so stop it altogether, or secondary prevention. Find people in that prodromal stage and give them something benign that's not going to make them sick that's going to stop that disease progression. So that's, that's the future, and hopefully our, you know, our children won't be having to hear about these diseases. And with that, I just want to thank you all for your attention and acknowledge all the people who paid for this research, and most of all, the research study participants and their family members, uh, because without them, we'd never learn anything about any disease. So thank you. Yeah. The question was, do we know specifically what it is about exercise that is uh, helping to prevent these diseases? Yeah, I, I think um, we have a glimmer of an understanding, uh, and I think my, mouse models of this help a lot. I, I think the growth factors are released, uh, so we know that something called BDNF is released uh, uh, that binds to the hippocampus and helps uh, with memory particularly uh, when mice exercise. So we, we think that maybe stimulating the right chemical milieu is important, um, yeah, when people exercise, they turn on different circuits in the brain. I think one of the th circuits that they tend to turn on is the circuit that gets attacked in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so uh, it's very interesting that uh, while we are exercising, we are in uh, often this default mode network, uh, uh, contemplating, thinking, remembering. Um, not clear how that relates to it, but it and then the third part is uh, cardiovascular risk factors. So uh, Dr. Tanner has shown, you know, that uh, obesity um, yeah, almost certainly has got uh, association with all these degenerative diseases, probably fatty diets. And so some of these uh, uh, other factors uh, release bad chemicals in the brain. And when you get rid of excessive fat, it's probably good for you. So uh, I'm going to repeat your question. So the, the, the very astute person asked, I said 150 minutes. I may have said a day, but the recommendation is a week, 150 minutes a week. That's what they recommend, uh, for instance, after someone's had a heart attack. That's a typical recommendation for you know, post-heart attack prevention. He, he does it 150 a day. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> The first effective drug uh, that in that category of Aricept was developed in, I think it was first approved in like 1997, eight something around there. And so, and there have been two or three other drugs in the same category that have the same kinds of effects. I would say they were all developed in the early 2000s. Um, I think uh, pharmaceutical companies have, for the most part, given up on developing more drugs in the same category. So the data that I show would apply to any drug. Uh, I'm going to repeat the question, which was, uh, 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 she noted that uh, uh, the data, the slide I showed from Aricept uh, was uh, from 1998 or nine. So um, 
so, but but the bapanuzumab study, for instance, the the newer studies that are looking at uh, uh, ways to affect tau and amyloid in the brain, those are much newer studies. Every year, uh, there's more of them. 2014, 15, they're ongoing. Uh, so, uh, the gentleman asked about. Um, uh, how uh, uh, how we use imaging in clinical practice and how similar or different it is from the kind of data we showed today. It's a really great, great question. And a lot of the images that Dr. Miller showed and I showed and many of us in these centers, they're based on uh, research-based imaging. And uh, the, the difference between research imaging and what you might get in clinic is sort of the control of what's happening. So in a research study, we might often use one scanner, or if we use multiple scanners all over the country, say, we take great pains to make sure that those scanners are quality controlled and monitored. And so because the data are... Um, uh, so carefully controlled, you can analyze them with great precision, and 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 the noise is much lower relative to the signal. In clinical practice, um, that kind of quality control, unfortunately, isn't as good as it should be. I think radiology is increasingly recognizing that. For instance, there was a major finding at, from UCSF a few years ago recognizing that many patients uh, get too much radiation for a CAT scan more than they should. Radiology has been here as, and other places have been very attentive to that now and trying to adjust. But I think, um, uh, I think the truth is that in clinical practice, um, the quality of the approach sometimes doesn't allow us to use what we know from research in the best way possible. I think to to be fair, one of the 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 limits is motivation, and and the truth is, I think when one of these treatments that I've we've talked about really comes to fruition, it'll really push a, a, the the whole clinical practice community to change its game and and put a lot of effort into into you know getting every little bit of uh, of information out of the images we can. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's a great question, and I think it's really true. We are, you know, and I think UCSF, how a number of people have talked to you are on the forefront of advancing uh, the use of imaging for diagnosis. But I don't think we've done enough. And I think in, you know, in standard practice, I, I think it's going to be really important over the next five years that when you get an MRI of the brain, that you get the kind of statistical map that we do routinely now uh, and says... These brain regions look exactly like uh, a thousand controls, but these areas, like the hippocampus, are statistically smaller. It doesn't necessarily mean you have Alzheimer's disease, but I think to track progression and to really understand where an individual is, it's incredibly important to use more than just a radiologist's eye to sort of guesstimate. I think we are moving more and more uh, toward quantitative instant analyses of images, whether they're functional or structural, that compare that person to match controls. And I hope that that comes very soon. It's really important. Probably one last thing to add. We're finishing up now. Uh, maybe one more question, and that's it, um, is uh, computing power. 
hugely changed our ability to to manipulate images in this way in a reasonable amount of time to store all the data. So that's another thing that five years ago wasn't the same at all. The question is, can an ophthalmologist look in your eye and get information that might help uh, diagnose a degenerative disease? And then more specifically, does it, can we see amyloid yet? And I think there were some really exciting preliminary studies that suggested that we might be able to. Uh, I think the field has backed off a little bit from uh, being convinced of that data. Uh, I think it's a really exciting area, though. I mean, not quite ready yet for diagnostic uh, tools. But uh, one example is we had a young uh, neurologist here, Michael Ward, uh, who uh, really thinks that with some of these degenerative diseases, the eye, of course, is you got neuronal tissue. You can see the beginnings of the degenerative process by looking at the retina or the optic nerve. So this is a really, we probably didn't in this med school talk about this, but this is a really exciting cutting edge area as well where it'd be so great to get non-invasive predictors of, of where we are and where we're going. And the eye may be one of those places. So, uh, so thank everyone very, very much for uh, attending. And You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.